Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. We appreciate all the topic suggestions and questions that listeners send in, and we use your input to select topics and guests for most of our episodes. The most common questions by far involve testing. You have questions about the testing process, what results mean, what the best assessments are for a given context, etc. We're going to follow a slightly different format today with me sharing some of your questions with an expert with lots of assessment experience. The focus isn't so much on big picture issues as much as it is on practical things that parents and educators have asked about over the past few months. To help us address these questions, I'm honored to have one of the world's top assessment experts, Dr. Jeffrey Smith, as my guest today. Jeff is a professor and dean of the College of Education at the University of Otago in New Zealand. He earned his bachelor's degree from Princeton and his PhD from the University of Chicago, where he specialized in measurement, evaluation, and statistical analysis. Jeff taught at Rutgers for 29 years, where he was the chair of the educational psychology department. He moved to New Zealand in 2005 and has been there ever since. He has consulted with many school districts and organizations, including the Chicago Public Schools and the Educational Testing Service. He is the former co-director of New Zealand's National Educational Monitoring Project, which assesses school progress of 8- and 12-year-old students. Jeff, welcome to Bright Now. Thank you, Jonathan. Jeff, several people wrote in to say that they're just confused with all the testing scandals, admission scandals, controversies over the validity of psychological tests. What's your general take on the testing landscape and the ability of these assessments to help children and families? Are we doing better? Are we backsliding? Or are we kind of treading water? Well, I would say, Jonathan, with regard to testing in the United States, what you have going on is kind of the perfect storm, a profit-making aspect to testing, a political aspect to testing, and then just general public concern. Are we making progress or are we backsliding? I hate to say it, but I don't see progress in the last, say, two decades in terms of the assessment of public school children. There's just too much political influence and too much of a kind of a corporate influence on it at this point. I think what we have in the testing scenario in the United States today, Jonathan, is kind of the perfect storm of the interaction of corporate interests and political interests, and neither of those are good for educational assessment. I think that states and local districts need to sort of claw back the responsibility and control of the assessment situation. It's not in a great shape. Building off of that then, is there good information that does come from the testing programs that like parents can be using or should they be suspect of them? Like, What's your general 30,000 foot take on this for parents? Well, it is 30,000, but it's more like 12,000 miles, actually, than 30,000 feet because I'm here (laughs) on the bottom of the earth. But yes, there is good information, but you have to know how to look at what you have in front of you. And for that, you really need to rely on the school district and the teacher to help the parents interpret what's going on. Great. Let's get into some more uh, specific questions, if you don't mind. Our first question comes from Chris W. from London, which I believe is a town in England. He asks, 
How should parents deal with bright kids who consistently underpunch their weight on standardized tests such as the SAT, PSAT, etc.? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, don't let them have dessert until they do better, Jonathan. That, that would be the key. Um, <laughs> no. Not really. There really are kids who don't perform as well on standardized tests as our general assessment of their abilities might lead us to believe. I've worked with a number of children, of kids of friends and family members who are upset with their SAT scores or their ACT scores. And there are a variety of things that bright kids engage in that are dysfunctional on test performance. Some kids just get too nervous. The test anxiety builds up and they're not really able to concentrate on what they're doing. Some kids are too quick to reach an answer. Some kids deliberate over the answers forever. And in working with those kids one-on-one, I've been able in a number of situations to really help them improve their test performance and let their true abilities show through on the tests. I wouldn't say that's true of all kids. I wouldn't even say it's true of most kids, but it is certainly true of some. Okay, good. That's helpful. Um, uh, this next question gets into twice exceptionality, which is you know a doubly tricky um, set of circumstances. It comes from Jill Kay from Connecticut, who writes, I'm always searching for assessment instruments and results that shed light on twice exceptional diagnoses. For example, having an artistic talent alongside several standard deviations of difference within each academic and cognitive domain. She goes on to suggest, you know, is there a difference between using percentiles and standard scores? But her basic question is, how can we use results to help educators personalize instruction for twice exceptional students? Well, why don't we begin by clarifying what we mean by twice exceptional? By that, I'm assuming you mean a child who really excels in one area, but has severe challenges in a different area. Is that correct? Yes, I believe that's generally how we're using it here now. Okay, great. Again, such children exist. Jill Kay is absolutely right. You're not going to find, unless there are things that have gone on since I've moved to New Zealand, you're not going to find an instrument that's going to really help you assess artistic talent and at the same time, dyslexia. You've got to use multiple instruments in order in order to do that. The question about using percentiles versus standard scores, in all honesty, just doesn't matter. You can use either the 98th, 99th percentile is going to be two or three standard deviations above the mean or have a standard score that looks like that. So the metric that you use doesn't, doesn't really matter as long as you understand the metric that you're using. The 2E diagnoses, though, in general, I would say in all honesty and frankness, you shouldn't talk to a testing person about that. You should talk to somebody who specializes in those issues. The instruments are there. They're separate. They're usable. They're not hard to understand. But in terms of what do we do with a child? How do we work with a child who has really strong artistic talent, but also has learning challenges, that's a huge question, and that's above my pay grade as a measurement specialist. I think as awareness of twice exceptionality continues to grow, like I remember when I was an elementary school teacher, the concept of twice exceptionality just blew people's minds. They were like, no, this child has learning disabilities. They can't be talented. And we have made progress since those days, but we haven't made a ton of progress. And I I think your point is very well taken that there are people who are specializing in this now who can really help educators and parents. When you're thinking about this, 
to me, you don't look at a child and say, oh, that's a 2E diagnosis. You look at a child and say, that's Brian. And Brian seems to be really exceptionally good at this, and he's got some difficulties in that. And his parents are concerned for the very best possible outcomes for that child. One of my colleagues at Rutgers always used to say in talking to student teachers about doing parent conferences, you have to understand these are the very best children these people have. And I think that's important. We have to deal with children one child at a time, one set of skills and abilities and dispositions at a time, and worry less about putting kids into boxes. Let's move on to a question from Desilie T. from Sydney, Australia, a country with which I believe you are geographically familiar. She has emailed, I'm always looking for ways to assess critical thinking. Love to hear some ideas about how to go about doing this. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jeff? Yeah, a couple. There's certainly critical thinking tests out there, Watson, Glazer, and I mean, if you Google critical thinking tests, you'll get several million hits. And in a time of coronavirus, there's not much else going on, so you might as well do that. But for me, I would look at critical thinking, to me, is critical thinking about something. And so I think I would focus more on, all right, we're working on ecology and the environment today. So here's an issue for us to consider. On one hand, we've got this. On the other hand, we've got that. How are we going to resolve that issue? How are we going to come to grips with what's going on? Where are we going to get the information that we need? In other words, I would lean toward contextualizing it because when we engage in critical thinking, we usually engage in critical thinking about something. Uh, So very much domain and content specific approach to that then. Yeah. And that is not to say that I think critical thinking is uniquely domain specific. I think that critical thinking skills do span a variety of different areas, but it is more useful, I think, to explore it within a context. Would you feel the same way about creativity assessment then, Jeff? Yeah, I think I would. I think the notion that people can be creative across a number of domains is probably a good way to look at it, but that if we were going to assess it, we'd want to assess it about something. You can't just say to somebody, all right, let's see your creativity you know, bring it. That has to be, here is an issue, here is a task, here's a test, let's see what happens on it. And that would be within some sort of a context. I think within the field of those who study creativity, I would be considered a content general, domain domain general person on this creativity issue. But I would actually answer that question the same way that you do, which is even if there are aspects of creativity that cut across everything in one's life, you're still applying it in specific ways, which is the goal with students, right, is to get them to learn to do that. So I think the content task-specific assessment makes a lot of sense. Moving on, Femke H. from the Netherlands posted, as IQ test developers ourselves, we are wondering why there are no improvements in norming methods, specifically for the right tail of the distribution. If this expert could share his take on this, that would be interesting exclamation point. What is your take, Uh, Jeff? Well, I don't know if I agree with Femke that it would be interesting, but I'll give my best shot at an answer here. Norming methods are norming methods. It's like my old geometry teacher used to say, you know, Euclid's older than all of us. It hasn't really changed much in a couple of centuries. Norming is really, really difficult to do. I've engaged in norming studies and norming studies for IQ tests would be exceptionally difficult to do. And especially 
if you want to look at one tail of the distribution. In order to develop a set of norms, you've got to get a whole bunch of people to take the test. Well, most people would rather do something other than take an IQ test. And so getting your sample together, especially if, if you're doing adults, if you're doing IQ tests for school kids, at any rate, you know where they are from nine to three, Monday through Friday, but adults are all over the place. So developing those norms is particularly difficult. I would argue, don't worry about the norms so much. If you could move to more criterion-based methods of coming up with scale for interpreting IQ tests, you could worry less about those norming methods. So short answer is no, they haven't changed much because they are what they are. Okay, let's jump to a question from Gail D. from Virginia. And she's wondering if we are concerned about potential for cultural biases in many standardized tests, such as the SAT, GRE, what other forms of assessment are suggested? Another listener from Iowa shared that her district is dealing with critics who cite research and researches in quotes that all intellectual tests are racially and or culturally biased, making all of their results suspect. What's your reaction to the bias versus discrimination type types of issues? That's a really complex question, Jonathan. I'll, I'll try and do it justice here. To me, the issue really lies in the interpretation of the results of any measure that you get. And the problem we run into with IQ testing is when you get the score back on a child, there is a tendency to reify that score into a real measure of intelligence. This is really what we have. We've really tapped into this child's intelligence. When the fact of the matter is, is that you've tapped into the child's cognitive abilities to some degree, but you've also tapped into their life experiences in addition to their ability to have processed those life experiences. And since our life experiences can be dramatically different, and since there are cultural and ethnic aspects of those life experiences, drawing the conclusion that this score means the same thing for child A as it does for child B. That's where we get into trouble. If we keep our interpretation of a set of test results to this is what this child did when presented with these set of tasks, is there something meaningful I can take from that? That's a very different set of conclusions from saying, ah, this is this child's IQ based on this test that he just took. Therefore, he is this smart or not this smart. There are a lot of ways to get a low score on an IQ test. There are very few ways to get a very high score on an IQ test. Kids who score very, very well on IQ tests are probably really pretty bright kids, but a lot of bright kids aren't going to score well on an IQ test if their background is really dramatically different from what the test is tapping into. Yeah, you just reminded me of something that my colleague Tracy Cross at William & Mary, I heard him say once, he is no great fan of testing, period. But he had a great line once. It was a pretty involved discussion on this exact topic. He put it a little differently. He said, there aren't a lot of false positives on these tests, but the That's hard true. part is you never know how many false negatives there are. 
Like it could be, like you just said, there could be a million different reasons, which is why you can't overinterpret these scores too much. You can't reify them, as I, I think you very wisely said. Let's move on to a question from Vienna, Austria, from Eva K. I would like to hear more about studies on formative assessment and its benefits for potential development. As a teacher, I have this gut feeling that formative assessment tools are necessary for individual potential development in gifted education. As a researcher, I am interested in actual studies that show how and to what extent formative assessment supports potential development. What's the role of formative assessment, Jeff? Well, the research is pretty clear that formative assessment is one of the most powerful tools we have in education. There's a great book out right now, Jonathan, called the Cambridge Handbook of Instructional Feedback that you might be familiar with. And I would send to Eva Kay to that. That's a shameless plug. Formative assessment is an absolutely key element in education. Related to that is feedback, which is the area that I'm studying most intensely right now. In order to maximize learning, it's really, really important that the learner has an idea of this is how well I did on this. This is what I did right. This is what I had trouble with. And here's what I can do to improve on what I had trouble with and to make what I did right even better. That's feedback. Feedback is based on formative assessment. Most formative assessment would come from a teacher, but it doesn't necessarily have to. If you're trying to improve your golf game and you hit a golf ball and you hit a huge slice on it, that slice is telling you you did something wrong. All right. And so that's the formative assessment. But you don't have necessarily the good feedback to go along with it. There's no skilled instructor there saying this is why you hit that tremendous slice. So formative assessment and feedback go hand in hand. And John Hattie's research on this is meta-analytical research shows that it's clearly one of, if not the most powerful tools we have in our toolkit for enhancing learning. Our next question is from Kathleen P. from Tennessee, who asks, why do we make test takers take computer-based assessments? Why don't we let them choose between a paper-based exam and a computer-based assessment? Shouldn't we set the examinee up for success by giving them the option? Yeah, we don't do it, Kathleen, because I'm not in charge. <laughs> if, if I were in charge, we would let kids choose between the two. Why not give them the, the mode for taking the test that they feel most comfortable with? The answer you would get from the testing folks, and it's not an unreasonable answer, is that the system for computer-based exams is a more complex and refined approach to assessment than a paper and pencil test. Every time you take a question on most computer-based assessments, I think probably the one she's talking about, the computer analyzes your response and gives you a next question that is based on how well you did on the previous question. And so what it does is, if you get a question right, you get a harder question. If you get a question wrong, you get an easier question. And it basically bounces back and forth until it kind of finds that sweet spot where you're getting about 50 to 60% of the questions right, and then it stops the exam. Obviously, you can't do that on a paper-based exam. But to a degree, I would argue, so what? So a kid has to take another 15 minutes worth of testing if he wants to take a paper-based exam. Let's let him or her have that choice. 
Great. That's a really interesting answer. I've got three questions that I know are really important to parents. So we're going to have to rapid fire them a little bit. Kristen G. from Houston, Texas writes, I have a question from a parent who is asking if IQ can increase over time. To give context, the parent is asking because our district offers a school for the highly gifted and she has a child who has not met the scoring criteria to apply. So she is wanting to know how long she should continue pursuing testing of the child to see if he qualifies. Thank you for any information you can provide. So this is really a sort of a test score stability sorts of question. Sure. To begin with, sure, IQ can increase over time. The brain's malleable, but it doesn't typically, in most folks, change a whole lot over time, but it can change. But I would not continue giving this child an IQ test year after year in order to get the child into the program. The goal in life, and people ask me about which, how can they get their child into the best college? And I always say, you don't want your child to go to the best college. You want your child to go to the best college for your child. And that might not necessarily be the most prestigious possible college. Everybody wants to get their kids into the gifted program. I'm barely sympathetic with that. But at some point, you have to say, let's focus on other things. Testing accommodations seem to be uh, proliferating, and we get a lot of questions about testing accommodations. As one person worded, these accommodations are proliferating, particularly in wealthiest metropolitan areas, and she thinks far beyond statistical norms. When are testing accommodations justified? When are they not? Well, I think you need to understand that to begin with, wearing glasses is a testing accommodation. And we would we would never think of not letting a child wear glasses to take a test. And so the question that becomes, at what point does the interpretation that we can make from the test score no longer hold in comparisons to kids who haven't had that accommodation. And to me, that's kind of the critical factor there. Is there a tendency in terms of increased time, this, that, and the other thing to try and give kids advantages when they're not justified? Sadly, I think that probably goes on. And sadly, I think it's probably um, more located in wealthier areas than not. I think that's a concern. All right, last question. As one parent put it very, very directly, SAT versus ACT. How should families navigate the decision to take one or the other or both? (laughs) Historically, the ACTs were more oriented toward learning in schools than the SATs were more, if I might say it, oriented toward IQ type measures. The SAT has moved toward the ACT in philosophy in that they are more school oriented these days. In all honesty, if it were my kid, I'd say, let's take both and pick the one that you did best on. It's just one Saturday afternoon. Jeff, you have been fantastic. We've blitzed through all of these questions. I really appreciate you coming on to help us with these. Your answers were all extremely clear. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Bright Now. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. Stay safe, stay well, wash your hands. (laughs) Thank you, sir. As always, we will post show notes for this episode that provide additional resources for parents and teachers looking for assessment information. See you next episode. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, 
and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Pucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a Three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.